Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. I'm Cardiff Garcia, a New York-based correspondent, and this is surely the most international edition of Alpha Chat we've ever had. I've got David Keohan in London. He's our producer, and he's going to jump in now and again as well. David, how are you? Good, sir. Thanks. And we've got Kate Frenzy McKenzie in Sydney, Australia. Kate, how you doing? Hey, I'm really good, thanks. All right. I'm excited because our guest today is Michael Pettis. He was the first ever guest on Alpha Chat two years ago. He's a professor of finance at Peking University and the author of The Great Rebalancing, which came out earlier this year. Michael, welcome back to Alpha Chat. It's the first time I've ever said Thank that. Thank you very much. Michael, I want to start very quickly by reprising some of what we covered in the first podcast a couple of years ago and then asking you to just update your views given what's happened since then. So in the first podcast, you made the point that China, because it had pursued this investment-led strategy for decades, was probably going to run up against some of the same growth constraints that other countries in the past had also run up against when they pursued a similar strategy, and that the problem might even be exacerbated in China for a few reasons. One was that China has a problem with environmental degradation, which lowers a country's potential growth rate. There's a problem with measuring the statistics and that a lot of China's investment was misallocated. In other words, that a lot of China's investment was recorded in the growth numbers as it should be, but that the growth numbers therefore reflected or exaggerated just how healthy the economy was, how well it was growing or whatever. Um, So anyways, I I want you to just kind of go back through some of those arguments and also just tell us whether or not in the last couple of years – Anything has happened either to change your views or to reinforce them? I would say it's definitely the latter. What I, what I argued uh, during the first podcast was not so much that this problem of overinvestment in China was different, but rather it's what has always happened when we've had historically these cases of investment-driven growth miracles. In the early stages, the investment, when, when capacity is very low, when infrastructure is very uh, poor, it's relatively easy for the central authorities to identify areas that need significant investment. And those areas tend to be economically efficient, economically productive. But in every case that we've seen in history, at some point, as investment levels are kept very, very high and growing very quickly, we run out of obvious economically productive investments but the system is so geared towards increasing investment that it continues nonetheless. And that's when you start running into the debt capacity problems, which, by the way, have afflicted every single country that has followed this particular growth model. And that's because as investment is increasingly allocated into projects in which the true economic return is less than the cost 
cost of uh, capital or the cost of the debt, then by definition, debt starts to grow faster than debt servicing capacity, and you run into debt constraints. And it seems to me that that's exactly what's been happening in China. We've been on this path of unsustainable uh, growth in debt for many, many years, I would argue for uh, probably for at least a decade. But while debt levels were relatively low, you could keep doing this without running into capacity constraints. But at some point, of course, you can no longer do it. And it's fairly clear now, I think there's not much debate on the, uh, on the topic, it's fairly clear that debt has been rising much too quickly, and uh, it is urgently necessary for Beijing to constrain credit growth. And that's what's led to the very sharp reduction in GDP growth, the, the money crunch we experienced on uh, June 20, and a number of, uh, a number of other things. So on the, on the liquidity crunch that we saw last month, like how carefully engineered was that by the People's Bank of China, if at all? Well, I, I would say, Kate, that the good news is that it seems that Beijing understands the urgency of the reforms and is pretty determined to force through the necessary adjustments, which uh, there are a number of things that they have to do, but probably at the heart of the reform process, at the heart of the economic readjustment, is constraints on the ability of the system to, to continue generating massive amounts of debt. So uh, there's a cost to that, of course, because the main source of growth in China is increases in investment. And since increases in investment are probably no longer uh, economically viable, um, the consequence, of course, is that uh, the main source of growth in China is an unsustainable increase in debt. So as there are attempts by the regulators to constrain that increase, we should expect growth rates, economic growth rates, to fall sharply, and indeed they have. Now, in the previous administration, <clears throat> it seems to me that we would have never allowed things to go this far. As growth rates started to slow, Beijing would have at some point gotten very nervous and stepped once again on the, uh, on the credit accelerator. But the current administration seems pretty determined not to do that. So I think that was uh, sort of the basis for the, uh, for the money crunch on, on June 20, an attempt to constrain rapid monetary growth and to constrain credit growth. The problem is that I don't think the PBOC actually engineered the money crunch. I think this came as a shock to them and to everybody else. And to a certain extent, it's because a, a number of things happened at the same time. On the one hand, we started hearing talk of Fed tapering, which placed already liquidity constraints within China. In addition to that, you'll remember that there had been a lot of concern that a significant amount of China's exports were not real exports. They were uh, an over-invoicing of exports that allowed Chinese companies to borrow dollars, and since they couldn't bring those dollars into China, legally they brought them through in the form of uh, false uh, export revenues, and then lend the money domestically and pick up uh, an arbitrage, if you want to call it that, of perhaps 200 basis points, which when you add to the appreciation in the currency, represented a pretty significant profit. So all of this money coming into the system through this over-invoicing of exports, 
underlay a lot of the monetary growth in the first few months of the year. And when the central bank clamped down on that in, uh, in May, one of the consequences, of course, was much smaller amount of money coming into the country, which was then monetized by the PBOC. The third factor is something that we've all been very worried about for quite a while now, and that is that there is increasing evidence that a lot of the money that is being disintermediated from the banking system and going into something called wealth management products are being used to fund projects that are simply unable to repay the funding. And the only way you can continue uh, maintaining these wealth management products is constantly to roll over principal and interest. So you had these three things, this urgent need to roll over um, financing at whatever the cost, and this slowdown in monetary growth that led to what seemed like a, a really significant liquidity squeeze in late June. I want to follow up on that because the Chinese shadow banking sector has come under a lot of scrutiny uh, ever since the liquidity crunch. And there was a really fascinating article by a Chinese shadow banker in Bloomberg recently, and his point was essentially that although it's not well understood, the customer base for the Chinese shadow banks is actually fairly well diversified, fairly legitimate, and that if anything, we should be more worried about the regular banking system. Do you agree with that, or is, or is that somebody sort of um, speaking to his own self-interest? Well, it's sort of a it's sort of a yes and no. One of one of my worries about the uh, um, the analysis of the credit problems in China is that there 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 tends to be a focus on very specific areas of um, of what looks like very risky balance sheet building. So in 2010, we were very concerned about the explosion in local government financing. We have been worried about a number of other things. Wealth management products are sort of the, the hot topic of the last year. But the, the danger there is that I think it misunderstands the nature of the problem. The problem in China is not that from time to time you have these irresponsible um, uh, bankers who put together projects that are risky. Uh, the problem is more fundamental than that, and that is that the entire system is very dependent on credit expansion to keep growth high. So the way I look at it, uh, it doesn't really matter whether the problem is local government financing vehicles or whether the problem is wealth management products or whether the problem is the increasing amount of quote-unquote financial engineering you are seeing among large companies in China in which they are making money not so much on underlying operations but on their ability to exploit differences within the financial sector, their ability basically to borrow cheaply and lend more expensively. It's not that there's a bunch of individual areas in which there's some risk-taking activity. It's that the whole system is wound up around the need to create very rapid debt expansion. And you can stomp down on, on any one of these different areas and the debt will immediately pop up somewhere else. In fact, you have an article in, uh, in today's issue of the newspaper which, which discusses exactly that. The whole system is addicted to an unsustainable increase in debt in order to generate growth rates. This is what's really interesting, isn't it? You know, you're saying, if the, you're saying the new leadership appreciate that this is the situation and they're coming up against the limits of credit growth. But the, 
the credit growth is what's been driving the infrastructure expansion that, that that's been driving the overall GDP growth rate for um for quite a while now. So if they're recognizing that this needs to be reined in, like how, how do they do that without causing um you know a lot of problems? But there, there's always this notion that you know the pact between the Communist Party and the people is that you know they put up with uh, limited kind of democracy and freedoms in exchange for really high growth. But if, if so much of the growth has come as a result of this massive credit expansion and mis- going into misallocated investments, but like, where do you see this going? Um, you know, that's the million-dollar question. I think there is almost no doubt in my mind that growth rates are going to continue to slow significantly. Uh, there's really no way around that. And if you look at the sources of demand in China or in any country, there's basically three sources of demand. There's domestic investment, domestic consumption, and, the, uh, and then the foreign net uh, uh, investment and consumption, in other words, the current account surplus. So the problem that China has is that much of the growth has been generated by very rapid increases in investment, which are funded by debt. As that investment becomes increasingly nonproductive, uh, of course, that's when you get the unsustainable rise in debt, and that has to be stopped. So if you slow down credit expansion, you're going to slow down uh, investment growth. And if you slow down investment growth, economic activity is going to slow down significantly unless one of those other two areas kick in. Is it possible to see a massive increase in China's current account surplus? It's theoretically possible, but given the weak state of the world today, and given the sheer amount of the increase in the current account surplus necessary, it's very unlikely that the current account is going to replace uh, investment as a major source of growth. So that leaves domestic consumption, and there we have a big problem, because domestic consumption is extremely low in China. Um, so if we're going to bring investment uh, growth down, we have to bring uh, consumption growth up significantly. But how do you do that? Well, it depends in part uh, on why consumption is such a low share of GDP in China. Now, there's this myth that consumption is very low because Chinese households are obsessed about saving and, and what we need to do is to convince them to save less. But, of course, that's not true. Chinese households save more or less in line with other Asian households. The reason Chinese consumption is so low is because Chinese household income is such a low share of GDP perhaps the lowest ever recorded in, in, in times of peace. So if you really want consumption growth to surge enough to take up the slack from investment growth, then what you really have to do <clears throat> is to get household uh, income to rise sharply as a share of GDP. So how do you do that? Well, basically, that's just the long way of saying you need to reverse what's been happening in the last 30 years. In the last 30 years, as China grew quickly, the state share grew and the household share contracted. So we must reverse that. The state share has to contract and the household share has to grow. That's just a way of saying that we have to move from a system in which there were a series of sometimes hidden, sometimes explicit transfers from the household sector to the business and government sector to subsidize rapid growth to a system in which now we have transfers from the state sector to the household sector. The problem there is, is twofold. 
Um, the first is that uh, it's going to be politically very, very difficult to make those transfers. The second problem is that because transfers from the household sector effectively subsidize rapid growth, if you eliminate or even reverse those transfers, you're going to force growth rates down significantly. So as, as I see it, Kate, there is almost no way, with the exception possibly of a massive and politically unlikely privatization program that transfers wealth from the state sector to the household sector, but excluding that, there is almost no way arithmetically to figure out how China can rebalance its economy at growth rates much above 3 or 4%, which is why I have been arguing that during the, uh, during the Xi administration, during the 10 years from 2013 to 2023, we should be prepared for average growth rates not to exceed 3 to 4%. Otherwise, the arithmetic just doesn't work. Michael, this is a related question, um, but you hear these occasional rumblings that the move towards full convertibility for the currency might happen sooner than everyone thinks. Um, do you believe that's true? Uh, and if not, how should we, you know, what should we expect to happen with regards to, uh, to appreciation of the currency um, within the next few years? I don't think it's going to happen, Carter. I think the currency will continue to appreciate because the, uh, the whole process of rebalancing requires a, uh, a reversal of those hidden transfers that I mentioned before. And the three biggest form of those transfers is um, wages have grown until around 2010. Wages have grown much more slowly than productivity, which is basically a transfer from, uh, from workers to, uh, to employers. Uh, secondly, the currency is undervalued, which is basically like a, a consumption tax on households which is used to subsidize the tradable goods sector. And then finally, and most importantly, interest rates are extremely low, which is basically a transfer from net savers, the household sector, to net borrowers, who are businesses, local governments, uh, real estate developers, etc. So if China is going to rebalance, and it has no choice, it must rebalance and it will rebalance, then you have to reverse those transfers. So in theory, it's possible that the renminbi will depreciate but if it does depreciate, it's moving in the wrong direction. And that means that you put upward pressure on wages or on interest rates. And all of those things are quite difficult to do. So my guess is that we're not going to see a depreciation of the currency. It will continue to appreciate. The financial repression tax will continue to contract, and wages will continue to rise. Those are all necessary for the rebalancing to take place. Now, will the renminbi internationalized? Will it become a a convertible currency and a major reserve currency. I am incredibly skeptical, Cardiff. I don't really see that that can happen. And the reason I say that is because it's pretty widely understood among monetary economists that if you have uh, no restrictions on capital flows, if you have an open capital account, that creates tremendous risk if your financial system is not flexible, if it's not solvent, if it's not robust. Uh, and on and on, and, and certainly the Chinese financial system is none of those things. So it seems to me a very risky strategy um, to uh, open up convertibility in China because that could create significant stresses within the financial sector as money moves in and out in large amounts and, and, and very easily. And remember, all these movements are going to be pro-cyclical. When China is overheating, money is going to come into China and create even more growth 
But when China is contracting or when risks are going up, money is going to leave China and increase the risks or, or in, exacerbate the contraction and growth. So it would be very risky and very dangerous for China to open up its capital account. So why is all of this talk? The, the rumors within, within Beijing are that this talk is in part a way for the financial regulators to try to force more rapid reform within the financial sector. There has been very little reform within the financial sector in the last decade. Much of the reforms have been sort of things that don't fundamentally matter. The real reforms are in corporate governance and in uh, interest rate liberalization, neither of which has really happened. So I think there's been some frustration on the part of the uh, financial regulators about the pace of reform and perhaps all of this talk about internationalizing the renminbi is a way of putting pressure for more rapid financial sector reform. But ultimately, I, I would not bet that it's going to happen. The argument that it's going to happen sooner than expected is one that I've been hearing for basically the 12 years that I've been in, in China. <laughs> um, it's always been five years away, and I think that's going to continue. It will always be five years away. So on this 3% growth that you're, that you're talking about, and I mean, I noticed that this is a number that now even some um, bank economists are, are starting to entertain as a, as a possibility. But what's that going to look like for China? I mean, how is that going to affect things like the employment rate? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people assume that if you see uh, growth rates drop from 10% to 3%, um, that'll be devastating for China. And I don't think that's the case at all. It depends on how the transition takes place. It depends on, on the way the reforms occur. Remember that Japan, in Japan, you saw growth rates drop from 7 or 8% pre-1990 to basically 0% after 1990. And you didn't see a collapse in Japan. And I would argue that the reason you didn't is because Japan genuinely rebalanced. So household income before 1990 was growing, like in China, uh, much more slowly than GDP, and after 1990, it was growing much more quickly than GDP. So although the GDP numbers look disastrous, from the point of view of the average Japanese household, there wasn't as big of a change as you might have expected. So if China is able to rebalance its economy effectively, efficiently, and in an orderly way, by definition, that means that household consumption and household income must grow faster than GDP. So 3% GDP growth rates are perfectly compatible with 5-6% uh, growth rates in, uh, in household income, which, as you know, is not a disaster at all. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do, but that's really the challenge for Beijing. They've got to, get house, they've got to maintain the growth rate as much as possible of household income uh, while GDP growth rates slow significantly. That's what it means to, uh, to rebalance. Now, on the issue of unemployment, China is one of the poorest countries in the world, but when you look at the structure of the economy, it's incredibly capital-intensive, which should come as a surprise. Normally, if you ask someone what is, uh, what is China's comparative advantage, he'll probably tell you cheap-disciplined labor. But in fact, that's not true for most Chinese companies, certainly large ones. Their comparative advantage is, is capital. They get capital at you know, depending on what you use as the, the, the deflator, at extremely low real interest rates or maybe even at negative real interest rates. 
So Chinese growth tends to be uh, much too capital intensive. So as part of the rebalancing, um, as the cost of capital is, uh, is raised to a reasonable level, and as there is more focus on consumption growth and growth in the services industry, Chinese growth will automatically be much more labor intensive. So again, this doesn't mean that it must happen this way, but it does mean that much slower growth does not necessarily uh, mean even slower growth in household income and rising unemployment. It depends on how they go about doing that. And that's really the great challenge that, that Beijing faces. Hey, Michael, I want to bring this back to uh, the financial sector for a minute, because you wrote something in one of your newsletters recently that I thought was pretty interesting. You wrote about the issue of market transparency as a feedback loop and why it matters, especially in situations like the liquidity crunch that started last month. Can you just tell us what you meant by that? Yeah, I think to start off with, I would have to say that, you know, I spent most of my, uh, most of my career before I moved to China trading the restructured and, and defaulted debt of the so-called LDC countries. And as a result, you know, that forces you to become very sensitive to the, the, the processes that increase financial risk and financial volatility. And I would say that one of the, one of the things you have to worry most about are, are, are what I call um, balance sheet inversion, which includes such things as pro-cyclical policies that have a tendency to make good times better and bad times worse. These kind of processes are very addictive, particularly during the, uh, during the good times, but they're very, very risky because it means that growth during the good periods is always higher than you expected with the risk of overheating, and during the bad periods is always lower than you expected. And I would say that lack of transparency is one of those mechanisms. When capital is, is uh, easily abundant, the cost of capital is very low, the markets are soaring, etc., there's a tendency not only to ignore lack of transparency, but actually to welcome it because uh, the markets are, uh, are really looking for optimistic stories. And the less information you have, the more, the more optimism you can build. So during the good periods, lack of transparency is really not a problem. And it may even be slightly positive in the sense that it may actually cause uh, a more rapid growth, particularly in asset prices, than, not, than you would have otherwise seen. But the real problem, and, and I think every trader who's traded risky assets can tell you this, is that when sentiment changes, lack of transparency becomes a huge problem because that very lack of uh, transparency means that you worry about risks, even risks that are not likely to be there you, because you simply don't know. So my worry about this lack of transparency is that it's, so far it hasn't seemed like a big problem for uh, for China. China has never been especially transparent. But there's a real danger of dismissing that and saying, okay, it doesn't matter. Because I would argue that lack of transparency never matters or, or may even be positive during the bullish phases, but they can turn seriously negative um, as soon as you get a change in sentiment. And I think we're going to start seeing that. I think if China continues to slow, as it probably will, the very lack of transparency that didn't matter to us for 20, 30 years will suddenly become a huge impediment to confidence and to, uh, and to investment. As a general rule, I think you have to be really sensitive to pro-cyclical mechanisms, what some people call positive feedback loops within uh, 
a company or a country's balance sheet. Those things always exacerbate volatility and always in the wrong direction. You go from assuming the best to assuming the worst pretty quickly. Yes. Um, with the with the liquidity crunch last month, another thing that I thought was really interesting that you were saying recently in a newsletter was, you know, talking about how the government, you know, will move to dampen down anything like a possible bank run or like word of a possible run on a bank branch getting out and. I mean, there have been like isolated incidents of, of things like there was a I know that the Shanghai branch of, of a sort of moderately big bank last year, uh, you know, Watch that attracted bank, yeah. some attention. Yeah, because of a, a WMP um, default, and you were sort of comparing this. I guess this is you know this is something that the that the government has up its sleeve, or it's an advantage that they have in that they can, um, you know, through controlling the internet to, to a fairly extensive degree and and, and, the, and the media, uh, they can kind of restrain these things getting out there. But then uh, you, you were looking at how they managed the SARS outbreak and tried to repress information, restrain the spread of information around that and that it may have actually exacerbated the, the, the kind of ultimate response when people did, you know, get a sense of what was going on. It, it, it became a, possibly a bigger deal. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was living in Beijing during the SARS crisis, and to me it was really fascinating because, you know, maybe I'm overly logical about these things, but if you look at the actual likelihood of dying from SARS, even in Beijing, which was the worst hit of all the cities during the worst weeks of the SARS crisis, it really wasn't that much higher than normally the, the, the likelihood of dying of, uh, of pneumonia. But there was this tremendous panic associated with it, and I would argue that, that that may have been because of the way they had dealt with outbreaks of diseases in the past. Normally, when there is an outbreak, uh, until recently, certainly before the SARS crisis, when there is an outbreak of one of these uh, mysterious uh, uh, pork or, um, or bird-related flus, the immediate instinct of the local authorities is to suppress all information and to wait for it to dissipate. And that almost always works. So there have been a number of these outbreaks, and we simply never hear about them. And so it sounds like that that's a good strategy because it reduces volatility. Um, it was a small problem. Uh, we covered up the problem. No one found out about it, so nothing was lost. But the danger of that strategy is that every once in a while the outbreak is too big to contain, and then the very act of attempting to contain it undermines credibility to such an extent that nobody believes the authorities anymore. And the point that I was trying to make, one of the lessons that we can draw from the SARS crises, is that when you have these, these small shocks to the system, the tendency to suppress information about the shocks may seem to reduce volatility, but it only reduces volatility when the shocks are small. But because the attempt to suppress information undermines credibility. Whenever the shock is big enough that it's no longer possible fully to suppress it, then you actually make the panic greater because of your attempts to, uh, to suppress information about it. And in a sense, this is sort of the same thing I was discussing with Cardiff. This is a very pro-cyclical mechanism. Small shocks suppressing information actually is positive because it reduces volatility but unfortunately at the cost 
of increasing volatility when the shocks are big, which is exactly when you don't want to increase volatility. Now, I think uh, I'm not going to suggest that uh, the, the response of the authorities today towards diseases is the same as it was uh, pre-2003. On the contrary, it's changed a great deal. And I think that's been very positive because we've seen other disease outbreaks, but they have never generated anything close to the panic that SARS generated. And I think there's an important lesson for the financial authorities there uh, to learn, and that is if you try to suppress information about financial shocks, you will always be successful when it doesn't really matter, when the shock is small. But that comes at the risk of really exacerbating a big shock at exactly the wrong time when you're least able to, ab uh, to absorb it. So that's another, one of the, another reason why you really want transparency in these kinds of shocks. It may seem like it increases volatility, but it doesn't. It only increases volatility when the volatility is very small. It reduces volatility when the volatility uh, uh, could be expected to be much larger. I might chime in very quickly just to ask, was there much discussion of the interbank squeeze or the credit squeeze in China? Like, was there any depositor stress or anything like that, or was it very much hushed up? Not as, not as much as you might otherwise have expected. I think people who are fairly educated, literate, and sophisticated about the financial system knew something about it, but it was often reported really as, as if it were a stock market story and not a... Uh, a banking sector story. So in other words, when we had the, uh, the money crunch, um, the stock markets, as you know, fell pretty sharply. And much of the story was focused on that, not so much on the banking system. And I think uh, it might have been better if we had been a little clearer about, uh, about what was happening in the financial sector. Michael, how much should we be worried about, I don't know, civil strife if we do end up with a kind of protracted period of much slower growth for, I don't know, a decade or more, as you're expecting? Well, the key is um, whether much slower GDP growth comes with much slower household income growth. Uh, and I think, uh, as, I, as I said earlier, that that's not necessarily the case. It really depends on how well they manage the whole transition process. I think while a lot of Chinese may be very uncomfortable with and mistrustful of local government officials, I think the central government has a great deal of credibility. So I think as long as they work hard to maintain that credibility and as long as they work hard to manage the transition in the least disorderly way possible, we are probably not going to see civil strife. We're probably not going to see the kind of things that, that maybe we've seen in, uh, in Egypt or Turkey or, 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 or elsewhere. Now, you know, any government can mismanage a crisis, and, and, and many do. So I'm not going to suggest that it, it must happen or it cannot happen. I'm just saying that it doesn't have to happen because credibility in the central government, I think, in China is quite high. And I think there is a way of managing a, uh, a much slower GDP growth without having the full impact felt on the household sector. Now, having said that, I think we do need to understand the challenge that, that China is facing. China is not the first country to have had an investment-driven growth miracle followed by a very difficult period of burgeoning debt and, uh, and much slower growth. There are many cases in, in, in recent history of that happening, 
and in fact, every single country that has had an investment-driven growth miracle has had a, uh, a debt crisis or a lost decade of much slower growth, uh, etc. It's not very easy to manage through the uh, the transition period. Some countries have done it well, and some countries have done it much less less well. Uh, so the jury is out here. But I, I think the important point is that whenever you talk to people about the possibility of a significant slowdown in China's economic growth, one of the immediate uh, reactions is on the political side. The assumption is that 3 or 4% growth in China is almost certainly a recipe for revolution. And I would argue that that is not the case at all. It depends on lots of other things, but it is possible to manage much slower growth without the kinds of disruptions that, that, that we would immediately imagine. And I would say that so far, I think the, uh, the current administration deserves pretty good grades for the way they've managed this process. Michael, I've got a kind of U.S.-centric question for you, because at least anecdotally, you hear a lot of stories about how some American companies will increasingly bring back, quote-unquote, bring back jobs home, uh, bring their operations home from China as the productivity-adjusted wage differentials start to narrow, start to converge. But I can't really work out if that's going to be a meaningful trend or not. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've observed uh, anything along those lines or if you think that maybe that's a uh, kind of exaggerated media theme. Well, you know, I think I've always argued that, that the, the most valuable resource in the world right now is demand. Um, we have excess capacity everywhere and insufficient demand. So uh, this affects the U.S. too. Um, U.S. demand exceeds uh, what it actually produces, uh, in part because of policies in a number of other countries that are aimed at generating domestic employment by running large current account surpluses. So uh, the key question really here is how China goes through the adjustment process. Now, if they do so in an orderly way, presumably uh, investment growth must drop, and it will drop one way or the other, but if it drops in an orderly way, then it's possible to bring the savings rate down also in an orderly way. And as you know, the current account is simply the difference between total savings and, and total investment. So an orderly adjustment in China would probably result in a contraction of China's current account surplus, which would be an increase in net demand for the rest of the world. And in my opinion, the U.S. is actually in a very strong position to take advantage of any increase in, in net global demand. If there is a disorderly adjustment in China, so for example, if, um, if Beijing is unable or unwilling to constrain credit growth so that we see another one or two years of very rapid growth uh, backed by even more rapid growth in debt, then the risk there is that you'll have a very sudden and rapid adjustment as we reach our debt capacity limits in which case investment growth will drop very sharply, much more quickly than the drop in savings can accommodate. And that means, by definition, a significant expansion in China's current account surplus, which I think would be bad for the world and bad for the United States. So, you know, again, it's too early to say what's going to happen. The initial prospects look relatively good. It looks like, the, uh, it looks like Beijing... Uh, as I said, should receive fairly high marks for the way they've managed the, the current administration, for the way they've managed the process so far. And if that continues, 
I think the Chinese adjustment is going to be positive for the U.S., not directly necessarily. It could be indirectly. The adjustment in China could be very good, for example, for uh, Mexican uh, uh, exports generally, which then in turn would be very good for Mexican imports, which would benefit the United States. So there's lots of ways it can happen both directly and indirectly. But that's the key. It's how orderly the adjustment process is. If investment growth rates are brought down steadily, firmly but steadily, I think the net impact on the U.S. will be positive. If, um, if, if, if Beijing postpones the adjustment because of domestic political opposition among the elite to a change in the growth model, then I worry that we'll be in a position where debt levels are so high that we'll get a very rapid, ugly, and disorderly adjustment in investment, in which case uh, the impact on the rest of the world would be, uh, would be negative. That's why it's very important that U.S., Europe, Japan accommodate as much as possible the, uh, the adjustment process in China, because it really is in the best interest of everyone that this adjustment takes place in an orderly way. Yeah, and you, you mentioned this in, in the last chapter of your book, the idea that to the extent that the global trade and, and capital flows and balances of the last uh, decade and change have started to readjust, uh, it's still in, in its early stages. But to be honest, from your comments just now, it sounds like you're fairly optimistic, at least in the case of China, that it'll do its part to move the process along, and, and some of this depends on the reaction of the advanced economies. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yes. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm pessimistic about trade because the historical precedents are, are pretty clear. Under, under, um, under this kind of global demand contraction, there's a tendency for trade disputes to get very nasty. Um, Europe, as you probably know, is hoping to be able to resolve its own domestic imbalances by significantly increasing its current account surplus and forcing its imbalances onto the rest of the world. Japan is in a similar position. They, as part of their adjustment, they need uh, to keep their current account uh, fairly strong. The U.S. is trying to bring down its current account deficit because it's been excessively high for too long. So the, the, the outlook, I think, is, is, is pretty worrying. I think everybody needs the same thing, and that's the formula for trade war and currency war, and I think that'll continue. Uh, my argument would just be that there's all the more reason why we need to have uh, global cooperation, um, and particularly global cooperation that makes it easier, not harder, for China to, uh, to go through an orderly adjustment. Okay, and one last question. I don't know if our listeners are going to remember this, but you are something of a, of a small business owner uh, in addition to being a finance professor. You have a nightclub. You own a record label. To what extent has Chinese entrepreneurship overall, do you think, increased visibly in the last few years? And do you think that if China successfully rebalances that we're going to see a big uptick in the number of Chinese entrepreneurs and also just in in sort of dynamic, uh, you know, small business activity, startup activity generally? Well, I, I, I'm very hesitant to parade myself as a successful entrepreneur because my businesses lose quite a lot of money. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I entered into this business knowing that. It's really an attempt to support one of what I think is one of the most exciting new music scenes probably in the world. Um, but more generally, the issue of entrepreneurialism is really, to me, an institutional issue in the sense that um, 
under certain conditions when you have the right institutional incentives, etc., a society can be extremely entrepreneurial, and under different conditions it's not. I think one of the great strengths of the United States is that it is institutionally set up to maximize entrepreneurial activity, which is why um, you get probably more French entrepreneurs in California than in France, probably more Chinese entrepreneurs in California than in China. There are, there are institutional constraints that make it very difficult for Chinese entrepreneurs to benefit from innovation and from entrepreneurialism. In China, the way you make money, and it's pretty well understood, is uh, through either maximizing your access to cheap or free credit or maximizing your access to uh, local and municipal uh, government officials and getting involved in the spending programs. So I would argue that, that that makes it very difficult for entrepreneurs to operate in China. And I think there has been a, a, a lot of excitement about the explosion in entrepreneurialism in China, and I think a lot of that is based on a misunderstanding. In the 1980s and 1990s, you did have a lot of new businesses, very entrepreneurial businesses. Uh, in China, they refer to them as the... Uh, the chicken farmer billionaires, but I think certainly in the last decade, it's very, very hard to see evidence of that. People will point to a number of important, uh, for example, Internet companies, but in every case, I think you have to uh, take it with a grain of salt. What often happens is that you will see a, a Western type of high-tech business which is replicated within China, and it relies very heavily, again, on access to capital and on support from, uh, from local government officials. I think it's going to take uh, a pretty significant institutional change before you can really describe China as a very entrepreneurial culture. Now, people will often tell you that Chinese in Vietnam and Indonesia and the United States, et cetera, et cetera, are very entrepreneurial. And, and I would say you have to be very careful because entrepreneurialism is not a racial issue. It's not something that comes from your genes. Anyone can be entrepreneurial under the right institutional circumstances. And I think that's the real problem. In China, we don't have the right institutional framework that really supports and rewards entrepreneurialism. There are other better ways of getting rich in China. Okay, well, the intro music and the outro music you're about to hear is from the band Carsick Cars. Michael, this is a band on your record label. You sent us a cut. Do um, you want to tell us something about them? Yeah, well, first off, you know, I've been involved in, in a bunch of music scenes, including uh, the East Village music scene in New York in the 1980s. So I've seen this before, and I have to say, what we see in Beijing, to me, is one of the most exciting music stories uh, in the world right now. There's been this real explosion of new avant-garde, experimental, and underground music. And in many ways, Carsick Cars is sort of the, the, uh, one of the key bands in that whole process. They started in 2005, 2006, and um, they, they've become very well-known within China. One of their songs, Zhongnanhai, is sort of the unofficial anthem of the uh, independent and alternative music scene in China. They've uh, toured the world with, uh, they've toured Europe with Sonic Youth. They've opened for... Uh, and played with a number of very important musicians. But what's really important about Carsick Cars is that 
you know, for, for many years, if you were a cool, hip, you know, urban, young Chinese, and you were really interested in good music, um, all of your heroes were American or English. Um, but with classic cars for the first time, and now it's actually quite common, but they were really the first band that had such a big impact on, uh, on, on the local young that someone like Sho Wang, who is the leader of the band, is sort of placed in the same category as, as others of their heroes, like uh, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth or Vixa Bargale from Mainz's and Neubotten. And I thought that was really, really important that they did that, because before that, there was a real lack of self-confidence in the music scene. But I, when they write the history of the scene, I think they are going to write of Karsik Kar as a sort of the the linchpin that sort of broke open uh, uh, the, the creativity of the scene. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan of the, of the band. I, I really love these guys. All right, and here they are again. David, Kate, always a pleasure. Michael, thanks again for being on Alpha Chat, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to have you on periodically from time to time. Thanks, sir. I would love to. Thank you very much. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 